Today I'll be talking with Representative Andy Gibson, a Republican representing District 77, which includes Rankin, uh, parts of Rankin and Simpson counties, just a little bit south of the capital here in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, Hines County. Representative Gibson is an attorney, and he is also a pastor. He is clearly a deeply religious man who practices his faith daily, and you will be interested to know that his faith also informs his major policy initiatives such as his feelings on abortion and his efforts to have it completely eliminated in Mississippi and nationwide. He is also a huge supporter of the Second Amendment and sees no reason to or basis for ever infringing in any way whatsoever upon the people's right to bear arms under the Second Amendment as he interprets it. If listeners are familiar with legislation that is being passed through state houses around the country and the fact that those bills have also been passed out of the Mississippi legislature, then uh, Andy Gibson is usually the author of those bills that deal with gun rights and uh, the right to have any type of gun and the right to carry that weapon any place one chooses with proper permitting and his staunch support of the Second Amendment and his interpretation that there shall be no limitations whatsoever on the people's right to keep and bear arms. If you want to know why it's important to listen to these conversations, to know what's going on in Mississippi, this is an important conversation to listen to. So, Andy, you know, you and I have known one another for, I don't know, 10 years, 11 years or something, but we've never really sat down and had a, a, a conversation where we got to know one another. Yeah. So that's one thing I'm actually hoping we can do a little bit today. You serve um, in, in the House of Representatives, and you have for 12 years? Yeah, I'm going into my 12th year. I was elected in 2007, ran against Same inc- me. an incumbent, and uh, was successful. Had a had a, a, a Republican primary, three-way race, then a runoff, and then a general election in November. So I was tired at the end of 2007. Imagine you were. Did you beat uh, Clem Nettleton? No, uh, uh, Representative Rotenberry. uh, Clint Rotenberry. Okay, I just got the names mixed up. Yeah, he had been there for 16 years. I have nothing bad to say about Rotenberry. I just, uh, some local people asked me to consider getting in the race, and I prayed about it, and uh, my wife and I talked about it, and we felt like we should, so we did. Well, and similarly, I ran against a 16-year incumbent uh, who was in the Senate my first time in 2007 and went around and talked to folks, and, and they encouraged me to do it, even though I had not been in Hancock County all that long, but ended up winning by a pretty slim margin. Yeah. Um, so where are you originally from? I was born and raised uh, between Florence and Brandon on Highway 468 near what is now uh, commonly known as uh, Van's Deer processing and firearms yeah. uh, sales right there off 468. I went to Brandon. Uh, actually, before there was state kindergarten, I attended kindergarten at the First Baptist Church, Brandon Kindergarten, and then went uh, all first through 12th grade at Brandon, graduated there in 1995. Uh, Brandon High School. Brandon High School. All right, so we have another similarity. I went to kindergarten at the First Baptist Church in Moss Point. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, where uh, where the Taggart family Is went, to, right? went to church. And so you may not know this, but the first ever campaign I ever got involved in, I was in high school, high school junior, and I was helping Andy Taggart pass out pamphlets outside of Dancer Stadium at Moss Point. 
Yep. I've known them a long time. Um, so, so after you, I know you're a lawyer, yep. and you currently practice with whom? I'm with the Jones Walker Law Firm. Okay. And Andy, what is your district number? Just so we district get that on. District 77. There. That's uh, Rankin and Simpson counties. I moved to Simpson County uh, to our family farm outside of Braxton, and uh, right after high school, and have lived there ever since, and raising our family there. But I have fortunate to have parts of Rankin and most of Simpson County. Okay. Um, now, you, you practice law, which meant you went, means you went to law school. Where did you go to law school? Mississippi College, School of Law, after going to Mississippi College for four years. You, so you went to Mississippi College in Clinton, undergraduate, went to Mississippi College, law school in Jackson for law school. That's correct. Now, my understanding, you know I'm partners with Brandon Jones. Yeah. My understanding is y'all cross paths at uh, one or the other. When were I, y'all at Mississippi when, College, undergrad? We, we were at Mississippi College, undergrad. And for a time, we attended the same church. I mean, like for one year, I think he was leaving. I was come, uh, visiting. My wife was going there. And uh, my, I should say my future wife. We were not married at the time. And uh, so we knew each other uh, in, at MC. I was in uh, the, uh, I guess, officially my, my major was uh, political science. But I also double majored in Christian studies. MC doesn't grant double majors, but they give you the equivalent of a, of a major in. So I got the Christian studies uh, major uh, equivalent, and that's where Brandon and I cross paths some, in some class or two or three maybe. Okay. Um, now, you, you get out of um, MC undergraduate with the, what's equivalent of a double major, and then you go to law school at MC, and do you immediately go into work as a lawyer? I did. I, I actually clerked uh, at the time. Well, the firm was Watkins, Ludlam, Winter, and Stennis, right. and uh, got to know Governor Winter and uh, then Sen- uh, former Senator Stennis and, and, and really appreciated the firm's uh, legacy and history of public service. And that's one of the main reasons I joined the firm in, uh, wow, what year was that? I, I guess I made the decision to go uh, with uh, Watkins, Ludlam in about 2000. Or 2001. Now, you must have done well in law school because I didn't get any job offers from firms like Watkins Ludlam or any of the big Jackson firms when I graduated from law school. I, I had to take well, what I could get. So you, well, you must I, have done pretty well. I was fortunate. I, I, I had pretty good grades, and I did. I did. Uh, I got. Uh, I actually had a scholarship at law school, and then uh, I graduated. Uh, I don't want to publish this, but I graduated first in my class. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. That's congratulations. I mean, well, that's a big you. deal. I was editor of the Law Review uh, at the time. In fact, I'm speaking at the Law Review uh, on Friday, and coming back, sort of. Right. It's a sort of a sentimental thing for me. But uh, Well, I always knew you were a smart guy, but I didn't know that about you. No, so I don't I'm, tell people that generally. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's good. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, so my understanding is that you're also a minister. Did you get any formal education on that, or how well, did that work? I told you I was a double major in Christian studies. Right. I, when I went to Mississippi College, it was my full plan and intent to go to seminary. And I think uh, Brandon may have had the same experience. Well, I he did that. go to seminary. He, he went yeah. on. I didn't. Yeah. I, I became, um, <laughs> shall we say, uh, disillusioned. With the formal study of theology, I enjoyed and appreciated my education at, at Mississippi College uh, and in Christian studies, and I still do, I, I think, very highly. But as I studied the, the seminary, 
uh, training uh, that, that I would be going to, I just became somewhat disillusioned with the prospect of that uh, <clears throat> for reasons I won't get into at the moment. But I will say this. I, the Lord was calling me to preach back then, and I said no. Uh, I was disobedient. I was disobedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I, that was my excuse, I guess, was the, like I didn't want to go to seminary. But I said uh, to myself, Lord, you know, I, um, I just don't feel like I need to do that. What are my, you know, what are my real skills and talents? And people I talked with said, well, you ought to take the LSAT, you know. You're in political science, too. Give it a shot. See how you do. So I did. I did okay on it. And uh, the rest is history. And I, for 12 years... 12 years until then 2010 is when I finally surrendered to preach. I was very active in church. I was a leader. I was a deacon. Sunday school teacher. Sunday school teacher. I was actually a youth director uh, for a few years. And then I became a Gideon, uh, a lay speaker, went around speaking to churches all over. And everywhere I would go, I became president of our local Gideon's camp. We give out Bibles for right, free. Yeah, but it has to be. I've only, stayed in a few hotel rooms. Yeah, only lay, <laughs> only lay people can be. Only laymen can be Gideons. Everywhere I'd go speak at these churches out and about, they, these people would say, "Hey, you need to. You you ought to be preaching." And I said, "Well, if I do, I'll, I'll have to quit the Gideons because <laughs> they do not allow preachers right. to be in that ministry." Well, in 2010, um, I was in the state capitol. I was on Judd A in the house under Ed Blackman. He was chairman at the time. And Marshall Fisher, who was at, I guess he was at MBN, he came over and gave us this gruesome presentation about methamphetamines. Oh, I remember. You remember that, the pictures and all that they showed? Yeah, yeah. And I was sitting there after telling the Lord no politely for 12 years, and he was flashing these pictures up of all these people and why we need to pass this law to crack down on meth. And uh, this picture of this little girl, I think she was two years old, had been killed essentially in her nursery by her own mom and dad who were cooking meth in her nursery. Her whole body was burnt from the top of her head to the sole of her foot. And in that moment, uh, I'm telling you, the Lord spoke to me, not audibly, but in my spirit and said, y'all can pass this law and it may help some people, but ultimately... People need Jesus. That was the message that I accepted, and I said, "Yes, Lord, if you let me get out of this meeting, I will." Next Sunday, I will surrender to preach, and I did. December, I think it was the tenth of uh, two thousand and ten. It might have been the eighth. So, do you have a um, a church that you pastor on a regular basis? I do. I pastor Gum Springs Baptist Church. Gum Springs. And, yeah, what what I, is that closest to? <laughs> it's close. It's between Delo and Braxton. Okay. On, and if you want to know exactly where it is, get on Gum Springs Road. <laughs> I got you. It'll take you right by. You got to be wanting to go there. Yeah, it's out in the middle of uh, sort of nowhere, but it's uh, nearby where I live. After I surrendered to preach, I just went around. Uh, I would preach revivals, and I would fill in, do interim, you know, type uh, fill-in work. And then this right. church asked me to come and fill the pulpit one Sunday. Then they asked me to stay as their interim pastor. My wife and I prayed about it, and we agreed, and I've been there ever since. It's going on seven years now. What denomination is Gum Springs? Southern Baptist. Baptist, okay. 
Uh, and that's what Mississippi College is considered as well, Baptist College? That's correct. Okay. Um, I'm Episcopalian, so all right. you know, we, we're, um, we're, we're all Christians, we're, but we're, we're yeah. a little bit different in the way we worship. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, I think, is a Methodist now, uh, but he has kind of been, uh, he's been Baptist, and he's been Methodist, and, and maybe something else as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly, you are a deeply religious and spiritual person. I mean, I know that about you without having known you very well, and obviously what you've just told us uh, demonstrates that. Well, I just want to say... I, I think all of us who are, who are believers, um, the best we can say about ourselves is we are sinners saved by grace. And I thank the Lord for His grace. And I uh, have answered His call to try to preach that, that gospel of grace. And um, it's really the most important thing that I do and will ever do. Let's talk about grace for just a second. And and I'm out of my depth already, but in the Episcopal Church, we certainly believe in grace. We believe that everyone is is saved by the grace of God. Um, how does that concept and, more generally, your spirituality and your, your religious faith inform your policymaking? Yeah. Well, uh, it it is not a faith that I can check at the door. I've told people this in, in other contexts. I don't leave my my beliefs at the door of the Capitol when I walk in. I believe all people are created in the image of God. I believe that with every fiber of my being. All people are worthy of uh, respect and dignity and and the treatment as the unique individuals that they are. I also believe that all of us, myself included, are sinners. We are all, uh, we are uh, not only sinners by birth, but we are sinners by choice. We have chosen to rebel against God. I believe the, the Scripture is very clear about that. And it is sin that is the problem of mankind. And, and so much of what we do in the legislature, uh, and, and even myself as chairman of Judd B., is trying to mitigate the problems of sin, whether it's you know passing criminal statutes to, to uh, uh, d- deter crimes, and, and which are sin in, in most cases, and uh, or whether it's to, you know, promote a better conduct of people. I think the role of government, uh, as I understand the role of government, as I'm informed by the scriptures, Romans chapter 13 is to, is to uh, uh, you can read it for yourself, but basically to <clears throat> deter wrong conduct and reward and promote good conduct. And so that's Really what I see is the role of government, and my faith informs me that this government cannot save us, but it, God does have a purpose for it. It is to promote peace and well-being and uh, a society that's civil and, uh, and, and uh, upholds basic principles of what is right and, and punishes what is wrong. Clearly, your actions that I'm familiar with in the legislature bear out what, what you just said. Let, let me ask you uh, in maybe a little bit different way. Yeah. Um, of course, one of the things that I take from the teachings of Christ is that we should all be more Christ-like yeah. in our in our everyday Amen. activities and our thoughts and our beliefs and in our actions. Mm-hmm. Um, how does how do you incorporate that into making legislative policy? If you do, so that's where we get to demonstrate. Um, we get to demonstrate grace. We get to demonstrate Christ-likeness and basically following His command to treat one another as we would want to be treated. Uh, I, uh, 
you know, ultimately, I, I would like to think, however long I'm in the legislature, whenever that comes to a conclusion, I would like to think that my colleagues like you uh, would believe that I have treated you kindly and with respect, and and um, we don't. That doesn't mean we agree on everything. We certainly don't agree on everything, but I I wish to have that as a legacy. And um, you know, when it comes to legislation, I I do uh, I I try to take the best ideas from all the members and incorporate them in the bills that we have. And, and uh, you've been a part of that. You've had some good ideas in our committee, even that uh, we put in. Well, and we should we should say um, so that folks who are listening will yeah. know you currently serve as the chairman of Judiciary B. That's right. Uh, have you had any other chairmanships in your time in the legislature? I serve as uh, I was appointed in two thousand and sixteen as chairman of the House Ethics Committee. Also, so I'm serving simultaneously. Before that, I was just a vice chairman. Uh, of, uh, I think, investigate state offices in my prior. Very important. Committee. Yeah, that's right. Critical, <laughs> critical meetings. Uh. Well, and as you point out, I'm uh, I'm a member of Judiciary B. That's I've right. been a member of that committee. Then I was taken off and put on Judiciary A, and yeah. then I was put back on Judiciary Welcome B. Welcome back. Well, thank you. <laughs> and and you're right. You've always treated me with respect, though we oftentimes disagree. And we, often. We will probably continue <laughs> We would to disagree, disagree on what policy is the best. I think that's where we... But but ultimately, I don't want to take over here. But I no, think, no, that's okay. I think if we were to peel back the the high profile things that we disagree on, we probably agree on more than we disagree. I'm glad you say that because believe it or not, I have a lot of friends who consider themselves Republicans. I have a lot of constituents who do, and and some of them even vote for me. And what I tell people when I'm sitting down with them one on one is, I guarantee you, while we might agree on this issue, whatever that issue is. We agree on a lot more than we disagree on, and and that's one of the reasons I want to do this podcast is because I think that people, if they will stop and think, they will realize that as Mississippians and probably as Americans, we agree on a lot more than we disagree on. That's right. And I, I'm happy to hear you mm-hmm. say that. And I want to let me add here. One thing that I find that we do agree on in, in large measure across party, across race, across economic strata is uh, Jesus and the, the the grace that we discussed earlier God's grace of salvation extended through the person of Jesus Christ we all we pray in his name we uh, we ask in his name and we have a commonality in the name of Jesus Christ as fellow believers and Christians in Mississippi and that's one thing I have always thought binds us together when so many other things try to tear us apart. Well, and you're a lawyer, and I'm a lawyer, and lawyers, I think, have a unique understanding that it's okay to disagree, even strongly, uh, and advocate for our clients uh, opposite to the other client, but then we can walk out of a courtroom and we can still be respectful of one another and even and even friends with one another. I think that some of our colleagues sometimes have a harder time doing that. Would you yeah. agree I, with that? I agree. I agree. There is a tendency of polarization in politics. Uh, that was something that um, I really did not fully anticipate when I got elected in District 77 when I came to Jackson the first time. And then my first day in the session, uh, we had a speaker's race. You were in the Senate at the time, but we had McCoy, uh, Speaker McCoy, uh, and of course, uh, the challenger, now Chairman Jeff Smith. And so there was a, an immediate whose side are you on type thing. And uh, it's been that way. <laughs> it's just that way. That's the way politics is. 
Yeah, you know, I agree with you, Andy, that it does seem to be that's the way politics is. I would like to hold out hope that we could rise above it in America and in our state and that we could have more of a a team of rivals approach Mm -hmm. and that um, I'm still idealistic enough to hope that the best ideas can be heard and bubble up to the top and and actually become policy regardless of who came up with the idea. So, so, um, you know, maybe I'm Pollyanna about that, but I still hold out hope that that can happen. Well, I think it certainly can. I think what we see wrong in Washington, D.C., regardless of who Congress who is controlling Congress at the time, is their pure inability to get anything done. And it is because of that uh, polarization. And I think that we uh, as a state have got to find the common issues we agree on that need to be done. I think we've had some examples of that this session in the House of Representatives, roads and bridges. We've found some commonality. In the House we have anyway. Uh, In the House, well, yeah, I can't speak for the Senate uh, but I'm hoping we can find commonality with them on that issue, too. Well, we seem to get, and you may not agree with this, tell me if you don't, but we seem to get really torn apart on the issues that involve um, what I would call hot-button issues, like abortion and like uh, guns, and those happen to be two issues that you've you've had a lot of um, bills that you've handled on, some of which you've authored and some of which you just handled on the floor. Um, so let's talk about those for just a minute. I know you feel very strongly about these things. Yeah. Uh, you, I believe, were in the photograph uh, with the governor who recently signed a bill that um, moves the, um, the abortion uh, period back to 15 weeks. In other words, after 15 weeks. It's a weeks. ban, yeah, from yeah. 15 weeks uh, uh, and forward, yeah. And t- tell us, uh, and, and I've heard you say this before, but uh, could you sum up what the rationale is behind moving the um, the period of time after which it's illegal from 20 weeks to 15 weeks? Yeah, the, the rationale is, uh, as one who believes in life and in the precious value of all people, I mentioned that earlier, I believe God, uh, uh, this comes from a very deep belief of mine that God has created all of us, including those of us uh, who are not yet born. Each one of us, myself included, there was a time I was not born, but yet I was created and I was formed. And uh, the Lord uh, brought me into existence through the miracle of of uh, conception. And there are uh, literally thousands of unborn babies in our state who are being Destroyed, their lives are being snuffed out for various reasons. Some of them uh, are, are actually, and, and uh, certainly, uh, there are some cases where there are compelling reasons why it may be necessary. But those are very few cases, and and so the the purpose is simply to protect more babies and to protect the women who are undergoing these procedures who have greater risk to their own health and safety and their own emotional well-being as a result of these late-term abortions. By the time a a child in the womb is 15 weeks developed, he or she has all the human features that that I have, that you have, that anybody out there has. They have eyes that sense light. They have ears that can hear. They are kicking. They're moving. They have lungs that are breathing inside the womb, certainly, but they're functionally... uh, a person uh, breathing. And so these 
bills uh, that have apparently become so controversial, the 20-week ban we passed in 2014, now the 15-week ban, they're an effort simply to say, we, the state, we have a, an interest and a compelling interest in protecting life, life of the unborn. If we could separate the state's interest for just a moment, let, because I want to be clear on what Andy Gibson, the man, feels about this. Yeah. I sense that you would like to see all abortion eliminated, period, unless perhaps the life of the mother was somehow in danger. Am I right or wrong about that? I, I pray personally, I pray and have prayed to end abortion in our state, in uh, the country of the United States of America. It's a tra tragedy that we've had. Uh, when I say that, I, I certainly understand there are exceptions to that general principle. But one of the key reasons I ran for this office was I believe that, sincerely and strongly believe that. And I would be derelict in my duty and what I told the people who elected me that I believed if I didn't stand up for that principle. Do you find any tension between your uh, legal training and um, being a lawyer and what our Supreme Court has said about the legality of abortion with some limitations and your personal belief uh, that you just told us about? Well, I certainly believe as a lawyer in the rule of law, I, and I've, I've tried to stand for that, and I believe in constitutional principles. And uh, having read Roe versus Wade, uh, there are aspects of that case that are that I certainly agree with, such as uh, you know the the uh, the issue of when the state has an interest and uh, interest that can be asserted. I think Roe versus Wade essentially applies a, 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 a theory of a fundamental right to abortion in the first trimester, that is, the first 13 weeks. So House Bill 1510 doesn't even come into that realm. There is no disconnect there. It's just another step we can take to say here are more protections we can put in place that do not exist today. So if I hear you correctly, we could go back to 13 weeks and still be within constitutional parameters. I think so. Why uh, now, it's open to interpretation. And, and I will say this, as a lawyer, we can't say Roe versus Wade is the only law of the land because, as you know, there have been more recent presidents, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, other cases that have gradually, as time has gone on and as science has developed and as the law has developed. It's always evolving. Right, absolutely. Uh, we, the only we, constant is it's constantly it's, changing. That's right. right, and, you know, they're, they're, the Constitution is a big constantly being interpreted. So so why whole, 15 weeks as opposed to 13, if you could just help me with that? Well, 15 weeks is uh, you look at, at that, that uh, unborn child at 15 weeks, and what I just said is true. The science. You, you, the science you, is okay. true. Yeah. The child is developed. And another thing that is true is the risks at that point in time to the mother are astronomically higher than they are at an earlier time. Uh, that's the bottom line. It, protect, it will protect more. It's a step we can take in the right direction. And I was glad to see it become law. So until the judge overturned <laughs> for so, a day or two. So the um, 
the bill that just that we were talking about that the governor just signed uh, changed existing Mississippi law on abortion by changing the number of weeks from 20 to 15. But am I correct in that it also eliminated a current exception, which is uh, in the instance of a rape, a child conceived by rape? That's not true. It has the exact same uh, exceptions that are in the 20-week ban. We we did that on purpose. Uh, We did not eliminate any exceptions or add any exceptions to the 15-week. The same in the 20, applying the 15 Okay, I was misinformed. Uh, and, and those are, uh, in the case of, uh, uh, obviously, the life or health of the mother, a fetal abnormality not consistent with life. Correct. Uh, our medical emergency. Okay, so those are the exceptions that are in the bill, in the did, law. Did we at one point have an exception for rape? Not at these late stage. There, there are uh, laws on the books that, that are regulations that are in place but with respect to the ban we've only done those at the 20 week and the 15 week and those are the ex- exceptions we have and the reason being i think i said this on the floor and it's really just a matter of common sense this is three weeks uh, plus three months since the the time the the the, the mother's last cycle that's a long time, and to the extent any of those other situations would apply, they're going to be governed by existing law, which do have exceptions uh, in those cases. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. Um, so let's talk for a minute about uh, the, the gun issue. Mm-hmm. I know that you're an avid um, supporter of the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, and you have filed a number of bills over yeah. the years, uh, some of which have passed, some of which have yeah. not. I remember one in particular you had on the calendar and offered an amendment, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, and I made a point of order on the amendment, and I don't even remember what the specifics were, Andy, so you have to forgive me. You may. Uh, yeah. uh, and then I was accused of killing the bill, even though we still had your bill on the calendar. Do you remember that? Oh, that was the. Uh, that wasn't my bill. That was the firearm but that was a, a bill I had brought out of committee of the firearms. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it had to do with there'll be no regulations of firearms created in the state of Mississippi. If they're, if they're created solely in the state of Mississippi, I can't remember who. So it must have been trying to limit bill. counties and municipalities yeah. from creating. You had a point of order that it amended other code sections by reference. Right. And it was on deadline day. And it died on the calendar because we right. didn't have time to go back and undo it. Okay. Um, but if you could, just speak generally about why you feel so strongly about some of the legislation that you've offered. For instance, there's one that we uh, we have this year that engendered a lot of debate. Um, and I think you rightly pointed out that we had existing law that allowed folks with concealed carry permits to carry into certain places like university stadiums, but they weren't being allowed to do that. And so your bill really uh, only created an enforcement mechanism for private citizens to enforce the existing law. Am I right so far? You're exactly right, David. I commend you for that. You're one of the few people who's got it right. (laughs) (laughs) the, uh, The current law is enhanced concealed carry. These are private citizens. I checked the numbers. We have 67,000 Mississippi residents who have taken these training courses, gotten what's called the enhanced endorsement. They become instructor certified, 
and that gives them the broadest carry rights of anybody under any law in the state of Mississippi. When did we enact that, Andy? That was done in 2011. Was that your bill? That was actually, it was an amendment to Representative Jones' bill at the time. I remember that. Yes, that uh, was, it was originally Brandon's bill, Yeah, and it got amended in the way that it ultimately passed. That's correct. The okay. amendment was offered by then-Representative Gunn and Snowden and Formby. The three of them co-authored an amendment. The chairman at the time, Willie Bailey, looked at it. It was I was actually privy to that process, though I was not a chairman of anything. And just, just so everybody understands, the three gentlemen who offered the amendment were all Republicans. Yeah. But, but Willie Bailey, who was the chairman of the committee, was a Democrat. Democrat, okay. that's right. They were on the and floor. And Brandon Jones, of course, was a Democrat. It was deadline day. This code section was in Brandon's bill, and <clears throat> people were scurrying around. It was actually a bipartisan effort. This amendment uh, had lawyers uh, who were Democrats consulted in writing and crafting it, one of them being, if you, I think you can go ask, Bob Evans, he was involved in it, too, because it, crea- it said, look, if you take this class, an approved class that's certified by the Department of Public Safety, then you can carry in all the prohibited locations under 459-101-13, except just a handful of exceptions, like courtrooms during a proceeding, police stations, jails, etc. Well, that amendment we got put into that bill, amended and passed into law, Governor Barber signed it into law, and uh, it's been law since 2011. So seven years, enhanced concealed carry has been the law. And in those seven years, you've had counties and cities try to prevent people from exercising their rights. We dealt with that in a 2013 uh, amendment, I think. But then lately, some state agencies have been saying, well, we don't want you to carry them here or there. They've had the right to carry in ball games. They've been denied that right. Was that right uh, conveyed in the initial legislation that was signed by the governor back in 2011? Yes, it was. Okay. Specifically conferred. So to answer your question, I'm going to talk about this specific bill. Then I'll go back to my fundamental belief that gives rise to it. Well, can I ask you one question before you go there? Yeah. Do you think all the people who are involved in this, people at universities, people who run courthouses, do you think they understood in 2011 that this was going to give concealed, enhanced concealed carry permitters, permittees, the right to carry in those places? I think they, I think they understood it. I think they did. I, if they didn't understand it when it passed, they understood it when it was implemented in 2011 and 12. And uh, frankly, a lot of these individuals uh, are concealed carry, enhanced concealed carry permittees. They know full well what the rights are, but there have been restrictions imposed on those rights. And all House Bill 1083 did was said, look, here's a process because there's no way people can't afford to hire a lawyer. You know, I'm a lawyer, you're a lawyer. I wish Well, they not could. at your firm's rates, but they could <laughs> well, probably afford to hire me. Maybe they could hire you. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, this would be the case I'd love to help them on for free. But people, the hassle of it to file a lawsuit to claim a right that's spelled out in the law, it's just not very efficient. So this said, look, you— Let me say I, I agree with you on that point. Okay. If the law is there, then somebody shouldn't have to hire a lawyer to right. enforce the existing law. Yeah, and that's where we are. So this, this let them go to the attorney general's office, a Democrat— let them interpret whether this rule violates the law or not. And if it does, it made them fix it. Well, next thing you know, and the first time I heard from 
the, the universities was after we passed it on the floor. Within minutes, they had issued a statement condemning it. Uh, I had heard from other agencies that had concerns, but they knew this was coming. And uh, it just became a big uh, hoopla with the SEC and everybody else saying what a terrible law this is. Well, I'm sorry, but it's already the law. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you on that point. And, and I think I find myself uh, where some of these university officials and the SEC folks were and not understanding that it was already the law that concealed carry permittees could carry in those places. And now I, I only have myself to blame for not understanding that. I, I, I get it. But let's talk about that larger issue. Do you feel it, it is, and obviously you do, uh, I think you do, that it's appropriate to allow concealed carry permittees to carry in places like churches and court and university stadiums where they might be, uh, there might be a rivalry mm-hmm. that gets pretty heated? Well, that's a good place for me to talk about why I am a Second Amendment supporter. Uh, Second Amendment and Article Three, Section 12 of the Mississippi Constitution guarantee private citizens the right to keep and bear arms to protect themselves, their families, their property, and their, you know, to, to basically exercise self-protection. That's been determined not only uh, as written in the Constitution, but by the United States Supreme Court and by our Mississippi Supreme Court. That's a fundamental right. When we come to talk about what our job is at the legislature, I think, and one of the reasons I ran for this office was, one of our jobs is to make sure government doesn't start peeling back the fundamental rights that we as people have and enjoy. They're not rights uh, that the the legislature gave to anybody— their rights that the Constitution guarantees that the government won't infringe and won't take away. So it's an interesting thing to, to study Mississippi firearms law. For years uh, prior to the 1990s, it was against the law to carry any uh, concealed weapon any which way. But open carry was legal. But right? open carry was legal. <laughs> the Constitution says... I'm not going to quote it, but article, the Mississippi Constitution, the right of every citizen to keep and bear arms for the protection of his home, person, or property shall not be called in question, but the legislature may regulate or forbid the carrying of concealed weapons. So that provision has been there for hundreds, you know, a couple hundred years. So, so in other words, if I wanted to carry a three-foot sword on my hip and walk in Walmart, Mississippi <laughs> allows us to do that, right? Well, Mississippi law allows... For the open carry of, of weapons, it does. It does not allow a person to brandish and never has allowed a person to brandish it in a threatening way, but to carry for their own protection. Well, if I have it on my hip just hanging there, Andy, I'm yeah. not brandishing it. Yeah, right? you know, and that, then that would be a matter, <laughs> if, if you're walking into Walmart, it would be a matter of somebody's private property uh, rights if they wanted to ask you uh, as a matter of trespass to leave or whatever. But... The point is, you know, we're, we live in a rural state. Uh, I drive to work every day a long distance, 35 miles or so. Most people in my district do too. Uh, we go down public roads. We go to public places. We uh, are in sometimes dangerous places. And I want the right to carry to protect myself and my family when we do go out. And I don't want any government telling me I can't do that. Yeah, I, and I have no problem 
with, with what you just said. Um, but l- let me ask you how you feel about this. Um, I have several long guns, two rifles, two shotguns. I hunt. I have a nine-year-old boy, and I'm trying to bring him up understanding and appreciating nature and how to yeah. safely operate a firearm to hunt. Uh, but I'm opposed to folks having semi-automatic weapons and bump stocks mm. and large-capacity magazines like some of these school shooters have used. Am I second, anti-Second Amendment because of those beliefs that I have? You know, I think that the federal law that we have in place that so highly regulates automatic firearms, it's been that way for a long time. I think the first automatic regulations were in like the 30s and then more recently in the 80s. Right, when the gangs were using Tommy yeah, guns Tommy in Chicago. Guns, that's right. Automatic uh, weapons, automatic weapons are already so highly regulated nobody can get them. Now, you talk about semi-automatic weapons. These are weapons that exist. That frankly, they're the most common weapons that, that are used for target practice by firearm uh, uh, enthusiasts, Second Amendment uh People who like to shoot uh, these uh, semi-automatic weapons, two twenty-threes, and they are, if I'm not mistaken, the number one sold uh, firearm in the country. I think you're probably right, and yeah. I've seen them used very effectively to kill a bunch of hogs uh, on someone's farmland, and that, so I know that, they are they're right. effective killing machines. That's right. I think when we have a tragedy like a shooting, uh, there is always a tendency to say, well, if we had just outlawed that gun, this wouldn't have happened. But the reality is that the the issue as to why that happened is deeper than there being access to a gun. But shouldn't we do whatever possible to limit access to weapons that effectively can kill 15 or 20 people in a matter of a few moments? I think what we need to do is make sure that those people who uh, are who have ill intent, who are deranged, a do not get access to them. That's already the law. And b, if they do, people should be able to protect themselves and prevent those types of tragedies. I've been to India now three times, a country where firearms are totally forbidden. The only people who have guns in India are the law enforcement and military, basically military. And I've been to villages, and they say, uh, we don't have any guns here. But all the bad guys do. They come in at night, thugs do, raid the villages, destroy people. And they go, and the cops are late. They can't get there. It's a rural area, and they're gone. You cannot, you cannot take away the fundamental rights of the people in an attempt to address an issue uh, when, in fact, the, the criminals and the deranged individuals are going to continue to break the law. The only people who are going to be deprived of the ability to have a gun are law-abiding citizens. Right. So what my focus would be, let's keep that person from getting the gun, and if we can't do that, let's have the right people in place at our uh, locations that need protection to protect themselves. Who would you arm in a school? Well, I really like the, the amendment that the Senate put into House Bill 1083, uh, which basically leaves it up to the school board to designate their employees, whether they it doesn't specify who it would be. It could be uh, coaches, it could be principals, it could be it could be staff people who are hired for this 
purpose to, to uh, protect uh, the schools and, for that matter, any other locations. If you back up and look at it, in our country, the, the most dangerous places to be are gun-free zones. That's why the legislature in 2011 passed the Enhanced Concealed Carry. Part of the reason was to eliminate gun-free zones. When a, when a bad guy knows they can walk up in a location and blow people away without any fear of being stopped, they're going to do it. They're going to do it, and they're going to uh, do their best to get away. But if they understand that somebody is there that can deter them or stop them, they're going to think twice about that if they have any logic whatsoever. If they're mentally deranged, there's nothing you can do to stop that person. But if they are a calculating individual, uh, gun-free zones are the most dangerous places in America. Let me follow up on, on just one point, and, and I know you got to go. We're, we're getting close to the um, time you said you needed to go. I, I'm, I struggle with this because— I don't like being called anti-gun or anti-Second Amendment. I've had guns since I was nine years old, and they were in my house before that, and I've used them my whole life. But I, I think it's a problem when we talk about the extremes, when anytime somebody like me expresses an interest in perhaps banning a weapon of war or banning a large-capacity magazine or a bump stock, then we're accused of being anti-gun or anti-Second Amendment. Do you see any reasonable grounds in the middle? I'm not saying confiscate all guns of all Americans. I'm not saying that, nor would I ever. But I do think that it makes sense to perhaps limit uh, the the semi-automatic weapons like the AR-15 that are commonly used in the large-capacity magazines and bump stocks. Do Do you see any common ground at all between my position and yours? Uh, you know, I don't, I'd have to see whatever the proposal would be. I have a fundamental belief, though, that people uh, in America, unlike most countries in the world, we do have the fundamental right to keep and bear arms. Uh, following the logic that you just described, Someone could argue the only firearms that we have a right to keep and bear are flintlock pistols <laughs> or well, flintlock rifles. See, now you're going to the extreme. <laughs> but I, but I'm I, talking I, about a shotgun, a I, rifle, a pistol. Have them. Well, but, but you can't go purchase, under my theory, you couldn't go purchase an AR-15 and put a bump stock and a 50-round capacity magazine on it. Right. Uh, I have seen that there have been some proposals to regulate bump stocks. Frankly, I have I don't own a bump stock. I don't know where I would get one. I don't know why I would use one. I don't I don't engage in that type of target practicing or the, know what the legitimate purpose of it is. You know, this guy in Austin, Texas, just bombed a bunch of people. We could ban bombs. People are still going to bomb folks. I think we might should ban bombs. <laughs> <laughs> well, my point is, they are banned. <laughs> bombs are banned. They're already banned. It didn't stop yeah, this I guy. I mean, to make light of it, it's a tragic situation. Yeah. He, he uses a, he uses a banned methodology and illegal activity to kill as many people as he can. That same thing is going to happen whether whether you take guns off the street or not. Criminals are still going to use them. So my fundamental belief is people should ha- people do have a right to protect themselves. And if these weapons are out there, law-abiding citizens ought to have the right to have them too.
One last question, Andy, and I really appreciate you spending time with me today. No I know you have to go. I also know that you have children, and, yes. and I know that you feel about your children like I feel about mine. There's nothing more precious in the world. What do we do? What can we do as state legislators, or what can Congress do uh, to take steps to try to prevent the next school shooting? Yeah, absolutely. I think a good step that we can take uh, here in, in our state is what the Senate uh, amendment that had passed the Senate in House Bill 1083 proposes to do, and that is to allow local school boards, not a mandate, but allow, allow local school board to, in consultation with law enforcement, designate certain employees who are trained and, and, and uh, equipped to protect these children in these otherwise gun-free zones. Uh, part of the training must include safe handling and storage of firearms so that we do not allow uh, a situation where a child could get a gun. You know, that's, but, but that's common gun safety practice that can be implemented by the right people. And then come up with a plan so that if we have, God forbid, another shooting, we don't have to wait 10 minutes for a local police officer to arrive to respond or for a school resource officer on the other side of the building to come and wait orders, we have somebody who can immediately respond to protect our children in that location. I think that's a good proposal. I support it. I do think the, the Trump administration is proposing some other similar type programs and funding mechanisms. It may be wise for us to wait and see what they're going to come up with before we just create our own. But, uh, I think it's something we're going to have to deal with eventually. Thank you. Andy Gibson. Thank you, David. State Representative, Chairman of House Judiciary B. I really appreciate your time today. Good to be with you today. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. you.